Well, as the kids go, go back to impact, I would like to invite Kevin forward. Um, Kevin Schultz will be delivering the message today. Uh, Kevin and Erica have been attending here for several years. Yeah. Uh, and you guys come a little bit of a distance. You guys are in the CV district uh, down my, near my neck of the woods. So we're happy to have uh, some, some people from that area here as well. Um, you, you and your wife have three grandkids, and uh, you don't seem old enough to have grandkids. But We're working on it. You're working on it. Okay. <laughs> okay. But uh, I just want to pray over Kevin as we go to the, uh, the message here today, Lord. Lord, we just um, come before you, Lord. We thank you for Kevin and Erica and their family, Lord. And we, Lord, I ask for a, a level of protection to be around them, a bubble of protection to be around their grandchildren, Lord God, in these times. And that you would just um, be with Kevin today as he uh, pours out uh, his heart and your words that you've placed on his heart. And we give you the praise. Amen. Well, good morning, Good Shepherd. It's been an interesting year for all of us. Uh, sort of today is sort of like the... Uh, Fruit of the Month Club when it comes to sermons. We've got something new this, this month. A little changes. It keeps coming back to you. Uh, recently, um, just kind of give a couple days ago, we have these uh, wonderful boxers, uh, which I named uh, Sh Shalom and Sheket, uh, which means peace and quiet <laughs> in Hebrew, uh, which is just a joke because we don't have peace and quiet, even though we do have peace and quiet. Uh, they are sort of an accident not waiting to happen. They're in a rush to find something to do. And being the year 2020, why not? Uh, at our home, uh, just finished washing the dogs, let them out. Erica's practicing cello. The resonant sounds of beautiful music playing. Screen doors are open letting the nice air in till the air turns into skunk. <laughs> Quickly, we went out to make sure they were okay. You have to check to make sure they haven't been bitten and all that sort of stuff. And we have them in the mudroom. Yeah, they stank, but we, they're okay. We let them back out. Little did I know the skunk was still out there. <laughs> and so uh, they finished the skunk off. Uh, I, got them separate in the cage and such, and they stank even more. Uh, and stuff like that, you know, just after you wash them, honestly, year 2020, why not? You know, it, it's just the way it works, and it's fine. You, you praise God for all the safety things that have happened, and, and he's here with us. But still, you feel a little bit dejected when you actually do all that effort to clean, you do what's right, only to have it stolen away. And then you feel like you just don't measure up. And in some ways, 2020 makes us feel like we just don't measure up regardless of what we do. Because we have all the things, all the voices out there uh, that just are pummeling us. Making us feel like regardless of what we do, we're not going to measure up. There's a lot of agendas out there. There's a lot of hostility out there. Uh, but there's a grace of God. And that is part of what I want to share uh, today. But that dejected feeling even though you do everything right. It's sort of like, you remember the math test that used to have at high school? Teacher would come in, books on the floor, math test. And all the knowledge that you had just starts seeping from your brain. 
and it starts to pass by your eyes, and you blink a lot, hoping that that's going to stop the, you know, the flood of it draining out of you. It gets down to your neck, and you're choking up, hoping that it's not going to go any further, but it goes right down to the stomach where all the nausea lives, and you're just hoping, but gravity takes over. I'm convinced the, uh, all the knowledge goes to your feet. It just drops all the way down. You know, in desperation, I probably lift my leg up and just shake it just to get the knowledge back. And my teacher will say, Kevin, you okay? You only need to raise your hand. You don't need to do all these problems if you have a question. I just remember crying uh, when probably eighth grade when they're getting us ready for high school, for algebra, where all of a sudden letters represent numbers, which I felt lied to because I thought letters were for reading not for math, A plus B equals C. And my dad's, you know, uh, works for IBM, very smart guy, responsible for a lot of IBM code early on. And here I'm crying in front of him, why does A equal two? That doesn't make sense. They give an example, A equals two plus B equals C. If C equals six, what is B? And it's supposed to be three, and that's fine. But for all the rest of the, the uh, problems, I thought A is supposed to equal two because they said so, and I felt lied to. And so I'm crying in front of him. And this is a developmental thing where you're just, your brain cells don't quite catch on after a while, you know, but you grow up, and then there you are. You, you catch it, but for that moment, you're a failure in your own mind. Math test, everything drains out of you. You used to know it, little squeaky note saying, yeah, you used to know it, I hit it on you. It's no longer here. Uh, we feel that way when we go out in life. We do everything right, something goes wrong. We feel robbed, uh, and there are a lot of hostile things out there that kind of purposely take advantage of that. Uh, but that's, you know, that's 2020. And 2020 has sort of had all the grace and charm of using a hornet's nest as a surprise birthday uh, pinata. Hey, we got something good for you. Let's put on a blindfold. You take a swing, and everything is yours. It's, it's wonderful. Um, it feels that way. Uh, but praise God, if patience does have its perfect work, we're going to be stunning by the end of this year. We're just going to be so beautiful. <laughs> and I think we feel this way, and, I, and this message was supposed to come in June, and so much has changed and happened. The message so much hasn't changed, but the atmosphere has changed. Uh, and so as I came approaching to this time, I'm saying, God, I have all the information down, and I feel it's right, and I want to share what I think I'm seeing, uh, but something's missing. And I came to the conclusion that what was missing is I just need a right spirit. And so Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me because it's the wrong spirits that we've been hearing that have been shouting at us. Uh, they always have shouted at us, advertisement, you need this product to look good or at least barely enough to pass. You know, you need this new car in order to be, have the status you're supposed to have. And if you don't have the latest computer, the latest phone, somehow you fail. Uh, it, it's just always there. But now this year, a lot more. Uh, we have all these um, political things going on. We have the virus. We have all the things that make us feel shut in, uh, ex you know, sort of disconnected. And we all know that we've gone through it. But there's sort of a perfect storm that's been happening. And what I'm seeing, and I, I'm just going to label uh, these as spirits. I don't know if they're really truly spirits, uh, just for sake of description. In this time, we have a political spirit and a religious spirit. Uh, and I mean that in the sense of the type of spirits that steal, kill, and destroy. Not the type of, you know, happy spirit. 
Uh, these are the things that are meant to steal from us, meant to kill us or destroy us if they can, if we dare align ourselves with the right spirit. And so my prayer to actually have the right spirit in giving the message, I'd rather have the right spirit than have the right message because uh, so much out there, everybody has the right answers. They have the statistics that back it up uh, and they bully us with it. And we sometimes take part in bullying other people. That's the problem is the spirit, the wrong spirit. Uh, when we feel passionate about a lot of things, these spirits give half-truths. Yeah, the answers are right, but the spirit is wrong, and the right answer becomes weaponized, and it disconnects us from the grace of God. Our identity is either challenged, or we are robbed of the joy and grace that powers the identity that we are supposed to walk in. So we are taunted by these half-truths, and you have your right answer, and we almost worship being right in this country. Uh, idolatrous, uh, but it's true, it's part of our culture. And so when we uh, are taunted by these political religious spirits, we get caught up into uh, maybe even grabbing at the half-truth, thinking we can fix it. And so we chase after it, because we're focused more on being right than the right spirit, and so we chase after it, and we catch it, and then, like my dogs, you catch the skunk. And you smell just like the rest of the world because we're of the wrong spirit. This is not a bad dog sermon like you bad people. This is just what I'm seeing is how we are, can get caught up in something and then miss the right spirit that actually powers our identity in Christ. You, you, can, you can take your computer and try to uh, power it directly from your car battery, but it's going to fry it. It's energy, it's the wrong energy. There is a false shame. There is a real shame, but there's a false shame that gets preached over and over again to disconnect us from the grace that we are empowered by. And so this is part of what I sort of want to share as a message. Um, but when we do listen to, uh, or if we get caught up in the arguments of rightness with the wrong spirit, then we enter into the war of the hypocrites. Uh, we ourselves become hypocrites, and we see the other hypocrites that would need to be defeated, and so we're in a war of being the last hypocrite standing, which is not the spirit that God wants us to have. It actually delays the revelation of the sons of God that the earth is groaning for. And it's when, we are, when the sons of God reveal the right spirit, that's when the healing happens. It's not in the right answers, but when the right spirit happens, then our words bring life and encouragement and grace. In John 10, 7 through 10, therefore Jesus said again, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, and make your dogs chase after skunks. I'm sure that's in there somewhere. I have come so that they may have life and have it in full. Uh, steal, kill, and destroy, full life. You can probably tell the spirit is wrong when there's condemnation, judgment. Uh, shame is an interesting thing, false shame. Uh, we call it by different things because we don't want to have it. It's like when we're offended, but we don't want to look like we're offended, so we'll say we're disappointed or we're you know, a uh, little put out. We try to call it different things so we don't have to deal with the fact that we are. And it's okay to be offended because Jesus said it's going to happen. And you deal with it. 
and then you're done. It's fine. When we're shamed, it means we're disconnected from grace because shame uh, in the Greek, and don't be impressed, I had to look this up, and I've always been told to pronounce Greek words and Hebrew words with sort of clearing your throat and sneezing or something at the same time, and it sounds right, but it's kadashino, but it means dishonor or disgrace. So disconnection from grace. It's very simple. Solution is grace. So let's deal with our shame. We often focus on our forgiveness of sins, which we do have, but we often don't quite deal with the shame part. And shame is not everything that you've done. It's also what's been done to you or what you're associated with. And those are the things we sort of miss. They get under the carpet because we don't want to look like we're ashamed or embarrassed or any other word we want to use uh, to express it. But Jesus is the gate. So whenever the political spirits, the religious spirits, the bullies, whatever they are, they're reaching over the walls of the sheep pen to try to steal, kill, and destroy, we can take that to the shepherd at the gate. Uh, rather than trying to fight them while they're at the walls, go right to the shepherd. He's the one that can help you there. Uh, but there's no condemnation in Christ for those who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So we have to make sure we're not walking after the flesh, but after the spirit. So go right for the spirit, go right for Jesus at that point. How is God going to deal with these spirits? It seems like this perfect storm where they don't usually show up together at the same time in such strength. They sort of feed off of each other, and the storm is a lot stronger than it normally would be if it was just political or if it was just religious. But things are coming to a head, and we could feel uh, dis very disheartened uh, of what's going on. Because it's happening, it, but the nice thing about it, it brings things to the surface so we can see them. If there are things we need to deal with, we can deal with them because in God's grace, if we fall short, we can go to the God who forgives, we repent, make restitution, and then we're forgiven and the shame is done. That's real shame. That's godly sorrow. It brings life. Uh, where I work, uh, we work with machinery that makes uh, plastic parts uh, for hundreds of different companies. When the machine makes an alarm, it means either the part that's coming out is not good or there's a possibly something wrong with the machine. And so the uh, setup person will go, address the uh, problem, turn the alarm off. If everything's fine, you just get on with it. In the fleshly world, the alarm gets to stay on and it follows you around. And that's the false shame. You're always supposed to be ashamed. Or you might even make the same mistake again. Therefore, we're just going to keep that alarm on. Uh, that, that's unrealistic because we'll never actually uh, be free of the fear of failure. Uh, learning the ways of God, we're going to fail. God knows this. He forgives us, but he, you know, your child takes the first step. Our grandkids, you know, we rejoice at seeing these things where they take their first step. And then, of course, they stumble. But you don't say, well, you're not going to do it right. Don't do it at all. You look forward to the next time that they do it, the next step. And you're there with them trying to encourage them to use what God gave them. And God wants the same for us. But we're told by the powers that be that we're supposed to, you know, sit down, shut up, and don't express uh, the, the uh, identity of Christ. We just got to be careful not to express our old identity, even how right it seems. The old man still wants to uh, express itself. And this is where what's on my heart as I see we're in this uh, not hopeless, actually a great deal of hope for this. Um, if we look in Romans 9, 33, Paul is sharing about the solution, I think. In, in turn, we have, as it is written, see. 
I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Paul is uh, quoting from Isaiah 8, 14, and 15. The context is he's talking with the Romans, which is a mixture of Jews and Gentile Christians, uh, but he's sharing with them at some point where he's saying, are we saying that the Jews who pursued righteousness by works did not find it, but the Gentiles who they were not looking for righteousness found it by faith? And the answer is yes. But there's something going on here with this stone that causes people to stumble. Read it from Isaiah. He will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. And this sounds a little bit depressing because it doesn't sound like the, what Paul said, that if you trust in him, you will not be put to shame. What I see here is this trap is actually also our salvation. It depends on what spirit you bring with you. If you've got the wrong spirit, you will fall, you will stumble, you'll be dashed to pieces. If you have the right spirit, you put your trust in him, you, you believe in him, then you will not be put to shame. You will not live in that never-ending debt of shame, because it seems like a shame is different than sin, to forgive sin, but if you used to be something, and you've repented, somehow the shame sticks with you. Your reputation sticks with you, at least in the world, uh, that you did something stupid once, and now that defines who you are, and it shouldn't. Uh, but it seems like a never-ending debt. And sometimes there are things that are done to us that shame us, things that we've been harmed by, and that we're defined by them. It's not our fault, but it's still our debt. And that needs to be addressed so that we can free, uh, and that our are free to walk in the identity that we have in Christ and that we have the right power source. This stone actually brings to mind what we used to do when we were kids, and I thought I realized the youth were going to be hiking. I'd be very hesitant in sharing uh, what we used to do, <laughs> or I used to do, um, but here goes. Uh, we'd go through the woods in Connecticut. We had lots of streams, lots of woods, uh, very abundant, uh, and we'd go out just walking through, you know, walking through the woods and pretending to be whatever, you know, or men, and we'd cross streams, and you, the fun part is crossing the streams, you jump across stones. Uh, some were stable, some were wobbly, and you, as a group of kids, the you know, first ones would go out, step on a stone, say, stable, stable, wobbly, stable, stable, and that way you knew the pattern when you came back across that way, you would know which ones to watch for, which ones to prepare for, which ones you had to be ready for, which ones you had to adjust to. This stone that causes stumbling, it depends on whether or not you're willing to adjust to the stone. Because if you demand that the stone adjusts to you, you got the wrong spirit. If you adjust to the stone, then you've got the right spirit. So while they were going first, I'd go last. And they were doing their stable, stable, wobbly, stable, stable. and. When I found out which stones were stable, I may or may not have, definitely may have, um, adjusted one of the stable stones so that it'd be wobbly. I figured it'd be a more interesting trip home to have that little surprise for them. Uh, so we get back, stable, stable, wobbly, stable, stable, wobbly, and, and he'd go. 
It wasn't very deep, it's about a foot. And so one foot, a little wet. Never underestimate the mel melodious, squishy sound of one of your best friend's sneakers in the half mile walk home. It's <laughs> they, I don't think they after actually figured out it was me. Unless they're actually on Facebook, <laughs> checking out a church they've never heard about and catching a sermon, probably yelling at their screen, I know it was him. He did this to me. Melodious, squishy sound on my sneaker. We're on to your evil ways, Mr. Stave Wobbly. And we have this opportunity to approach the stone properly with the right spirit. I think what happens here is it's an old saying. I think I heard it from a song. Uh, the same sun, the sun in the sky, that melts wax can harden clay. Wax at room temperature starts off hard, but in the midst of the sun, it starts to soften. Clay starts off soft, but it hardens when with the sun's heat. And so when God approaches, you never know who is actually going to respond rightly. Uh, Paul, who wrote the words uh, in Romans here, he was one of the hardest. He persecuted the church. He didn't just write pamphlets and disagreements on shows and blogs of, I dislike what you say and you're bad people. He had the power to pull people out of their houses and flog them. Many died. Could be in the hundreds, for all we know. And here, with his conversion, a hard-hearted person, actually, his heart was actually wax and it melted. It took a lot. Uh, but other people, they seem soft and great and when God comes for the hug, they harden. Uh, so we have to have the right spirit. It's going to be God's spirit because it's not ours. We tried it, worked, tried to work with the law, and uh, Jesus is the only one who was able to um, fulfill the law for us so that he could give us his spirit, so that we would have a right spirit, and so that we could walk in our identity. As I had mentioned before, whereas the definition of shame is actually disgrace, and it's very important to see that disgrace can be solved with grace. But we have this very unique unworthiness, each of us, that we feel like grace doesn't quite touch because we have this nice definition of grace, the unmerited favor of God, and it's correct, and it hits the head right, but the heart, when it hears this, it's like, maybe it's not for me because for Paul, can you imagine, he persecuted the church. He's responsible for people's death. People left Israel to find life elsewhere in the Roman Empire where they perhaps weren't enjoyed. Uh, he undid a lot of people's normal lives, and he had to deal with a unique shame. Yes, he's forgiven. He knew he was forgiven. But when your, your sins have a long reach, can you imagine him going to places successfully preaching the gospel, people being healed, Demons being cast out, meet the people afterwards. Oh, yes, I am responsible for your husband's death. Yeah, he's forgiven. They could even forgive him. But can you imagine the challenge over and over again, very humbly? You might say a thorn in his flesh uh, where he could say, God, can you just remove this one thing from me? Because it's really wearing on me over and over again, meeting the people that you hurt. And it's not like, oh, you're forgiven. Okay, no, you, you cry. You ache with what you've done to people. 
It's not a small thing. He had a unique unworthiness that only God's grace could handle, but it couldn't be that unmerited favor of God that's up here. It hurts way down here. So God has to handcraft a unique grace for us so that it fits our unique unworthiness. And we're all different, and we all are sensitive in different ways. And we need, uh, so we need to encourage one another not to fall short of the grace of God because he's made it specially for you and for all of us. Uh, he, he handcrafted it. I think it's in Peter where it says there are many forms of the grace of God. I thought there was only one. Unmerited favor of God is up here in the head. I think God takes a little piece of himself, handcrafts it, plants it in us. It's a deposit of the Holy Spirit that grows. It grows into the same thing. You take a plant and you divide it. You divide the roots. It's the same plant, but once you divide it, technically it's the same plant, but it grows. It follows the DNA, and it grows into what it's supposed to do when you give it what it needs. When God gives us his grace, he's sort of giving you a part of himself, and we need to stay connected with that because that's the power source. That is the spirit of God within us that powers the identity that we have in Christ. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. False shame will bring death. It's the wrong power source. Godly sorrow does deal with sin, but it also deals with shame. It leaves no regret. Those things we have to be careful of so that that little bit of yeast doesn't leaven the whole lump. We have to make sure we're careful with our words with each other. Try to honor one another, because honor, I think, is the vehicle of grace, so that we can make sure we don't fall short of it in this generation that actually is working very hard to uh, stop the, uh, the expression of the identity of Christ. It's not how loud we speak. It's not how relevant we are. It's whether or not you're connected to the grace of God. You can be uh, somebody so unpracticed in speaking, come up here and give a testimony of what God's done, and somehow the Spirit of God comes because it's the testimony of Christ. It's the Spirit of prophecy. And it's better than any well-prepared sermon. The person could be halting in what they share. And we're all stunned. Like, no, we knew that. God did that. So this is, the, this is the, what comes out of our lives. And there are areas of our lives that we have had shame, unique shame, that actually turn into ministry. And when we're connected with that grace, now we're able to minister in an area that other people aren't quite ready to do. So our unique unworthiness turns into belonging, acceptance, the power of God when it's connected with grace, the right type of grace. It's not forced into us, hammered in like a uh, square peg in a round hole. It's something that God is generously and kindly taking time to make for us, sort of like Jacob making the, many, uh, the, color, uh, the coat of many colors for his son, that uh, taking time. God does this for us. We just sometimes don't believe he's going to do that for us. Somebody else, yeah, but me, my own unique, line of unique worthy, unworthiness is really deep. It's almost like uh, the opposite of the Beatitudes when we talk about shame. If we change the Beatitudes of blessed these and turn them into shame, disgraced, or disconnected, we might get a feeling for how it works in our lives. Some examples here I might give, they are not... Uh, affirmations of uh, or making light of certain things. Uh, we can be very sensitive about that. I want to be careful. But shame and disgrace, disconnected are those born on the poor side of town, whether they're outsiders looking in. 
And there are many people because of the virus and the shutdowns who aren't able to work because they're not essential. Hardworking people, honest, uh, want to work, not allowed to work. And there's a shame that comes because they may have been told when they were you know, young from their parents, work hard, don't be found not working. I know a person who actually has that and now she's coming to retirement. She has this weird feeling like she's not doing what she's supposed to do because she her dad said work. And not that her dad was wrong, but it's something in here that in her that sort of judges her and it's not supposed to. Um, but if you're on the poor side of town, that's the opposite of the blessed be. And you don't relate with those people or there's tasks or uh, social things that we deal with. Shame, disgrace, disconnected are those chosen last for the team. You're, you're labeled for the rest of the year when you're last for the team. Uh, it's not right, but it's the way it works. Shame, disconnected, disgraced are the children of divorced parents. The peacemakers. Peacemakers don't always succeed. And children of divorced parents carry a burden with them. It's something that's been done to them. Uh, not meanly, just some things don't work out, but they're left with a feeling of guilt and shame. It's, they didn't do anything wrong. Maybe they feel they weren't lovable enough. Maybe if they had behaved better, their parents would stay together. It's, it, if you ask kids, they feel these things. They're not meant to be shamed, but they come up with that. That short circuits their uh, identity in Christ. We have to be careful not to judge, not to be careless with our words. Uh, at least I'm trying to be careful now because it's a deep thing. My kids have to go through this, and I have to be very careful with them uh, to honor them, to let them be who they are, uh, to be a father rather than a judge because uh, they're, they're dealing with things even now. Now they're in their 30s. They're still working out the past pains. But God's grace is deep, and it's form-fitted for us. Some medical people, God bless them, they can't save everybody. And one of the things I've heard from medical people is, you know, I'm a doctor, and the thing I fear the most is that I'll be found to be a fraud because I can't save everybody. TV shows have wonderful doctors, and they save everybody all the time, or they do it in the half hour, too. Uh, and yet that's a burden that they, they bear. If compassion alone could save and heal people, then there would be no sick people with, with the wonderful medical people that we do have and know. Um, but still, the shame is there because they do all they can, but they don't measure up because they're not God. And, but it's still there. Social pressures that we have, these pressures constantly press upon us. It's sort of like stopping the blood flow on your leg when you're sitting wrong and you get up, the leg's still there, but it's not responding. But it's part of our identity in Christ that don't respond because we've dealt with a pressure of shame in a certain area, which is hiding a specific gift that actually can be pretty phenomenal once we apply a grace and know how to apply the grace with honor and a specific form-fitted grace for them. I'm going to read uh, a section from Luke 7, 36, 50. And this is about uh, Jesus and the woman who anoints his feet. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Not many, not many Pharisees have invited Jesus to dinner, so this is kind of a surprising first. They're usually out to kill him. Uh, in this case, it's probably Jesus preached at one of the local synagogues. Poor uh, Simon, I think it is, probably got the short straw and had to do the entertainment for the traveling preacher. 
They didn't do a great job of uh, hospitality because they probably didn't really like what Jesus said. Uh, we'll read here. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar and perfume, and as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. A sinful woman, probably, uh, one, one use for the woman is usually meant to be a prostitute. Uh, more likely a story like the woman at the well who had five husbands and the husband she had wasn't her husband. And as unkind things happen in the world, you get rejected, put in a financial bind with no kids to feed. You find yourself at the lowest of the low, having to make a decision that since you're saying I'm a sinful woman, that's my identity, then I'm just going to do what I do to survive. Here she walks into the Pharisee's house. That's like a thief walking into the police station saying, I want to see the preacher. Yeah, I'm wanted in 10 states, but you know, this is a bold woman. Something changed, something happened, uh, which we'll see as we go here. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know that who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which do you think of them will love him more? Simon said, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. Water for your feet was a sign of respect. You have these little sandals. Get the dust off your feet. There's a kindness. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Can you imagine the panic of the woman? She's just coming in to honor Jesus. She's crying, weeping all over his feet. Realizes she just made a clean spot with her tears and desperately just probably trying to wipe it over with her hair. But her love is just overflowing at this point. She is showing love and respect. Simon was not. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. What we have here is a woman who, in Simon's eyes, if she repented and did all the sacrifices, she would still be a former prostitute because that's what shame does. You stay identified as what you used to be. We have that in even the political. Everybody's bringing up things for what somebody did from the past, whether it was what they do now, doesn't matter, you're identified. And that's a false prophecy, that's a false testimony. Um, it's easy to get caught up into the rightness of it because it's our side, their side, wrong spirit. Uh, we have one king, we don't have Jesus as king and then our ideology sort of helping the kingdom to be a little bit better. The, um, you're really trying to keep your flesh alive at this point and saying, God, you gotta accept what I've done to fix the flesh. But God couldn't fix the flesh. He had to kill it. And he resurrected 
a perfect wife and a son that we carry someday to us. She comes in with probably having heard maybe something similar to the uh, Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who are poor, blessed are those who are peacemakers, blessed are you when you're the lowest of the low. And that probably touched her where she found she was finally accepted. Can you imagine the years of prayer that she probably prayed, saying, God, can you just please save me, and not having an answer, seemingly, and along comes Jesus to give her the answer personally. You're forgiven. She was loved much because she was forgiven much. When you're not forgiven much, you don't love very much. And this brings me to Matthew 18. This is where we advance the kingdom. This is after Peter asked Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive my brother? Seven times, seven times seven. Interesting translations, they go differently. Poor Peter starts off with seven. Some translations say seven times seven is like 49. Fine, I can deal with that, and then I'll hit him. Uh, and some say 70 times 70, or 490 times. Okay, in the 491st time, I'll hit him. But possibly, when you go back to Daniel, 70 times 7 is what's used to express years, weeks of years. Two things there. We don't live 490 years, so yeah, we forgive forever. But there's just something I think Jesus is saying is finally the prophecy is coming to fruit here and now. We are able to forgive because the Messiah has come, the very one that was awaited for that time. So the forgiveness is just increased beyond just a couple of times. But in that forgiveness, it's not just sins, but it is shame that Jesus is undoing. Because as one of the songs said, he's taken our uh, sin and taken our shame as well. They're, they're separate things, but they're connected. But it's important that we take care of that one too. Otherwise, we hesitate and we don't walk in our gifting. So Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him since he was not able to pay. The master ordered him and his wife and his children and all that he had to be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Before that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell on his knees and begged him, be patient with me, I will pay you back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown in prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told the master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant and you wicked servant, he said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have also had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat you who, unless you forgive your brother from your heart. Those who love much, those who are forgiven much, love much. When we forgive, we're actually investing in people's future ability to love. This king, this master forgave. He didn't tell the guy, now you do as I just did. He didn't give him a command. 
but it was expected because this king wanted to fill his kingdom with love. And so he did so by forgiving a debt. And he expected his servant to forgive debts so that it kept on passing on from person to person so that those who are forgiven much love much and it becomes the standard of how we behave. It actually is the way we connect ourselves to the grace of God so that we have the right power source. So we're plugging ourselves into the correct power source when we do what we see our king do because our king, Jesus, did what he saw the father do. And so this shame that is constantly, we're constantly bombarded with, the false shame, it's not our definition. It is something that is forgiven under Jesus, and it is something that we must honor one another to make sure that we're not falling short of the grace of God. Uh, that's why I was saying, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me, because all this information, it can be all weaponized and become an abusive thing. Um, when you consider Jesus, when he said, take my yoke, it is easy. My burden is light. We have... Four generations back, if you take four generations back, we have 30 people that make us. All their hopes, disappointments of God, all their ways of dealing with disappointment to God, all the wrong spirited things, they come visit us, but we can say no uh, to those things, but not in our own power. But Jesus, he has a yoke for us to bear that is his generation, and his generation has no family baggage. We don't have to answer for anything at that point. He says, take my yoke. It is easy. He takes ours, and he, we walk together. And that's the unique form of grace that he gives us. And that's the unique form of grace that we have to give one another as we get to know one another, which is a, the real hard thing when you're being uh, bombarded with disrespect, uh, unkindness, rejection. You don't want to get to know those people. But to be the salt of the earth, you have to come in full contact with those people of the world. Otherwise, you lose your saltiness. And so it's that constant giving of grace uh, so that you can um, help somebody through something. Peter, goodness, he uh, denied Jesus three times. Jesus even told him it's going to happen. If it weren't for Peter being a loud mouth saying, oh, yeah, these guys, oh, yeah, they're, they're, they're going to reject him, not me. I'm, I'm going to stay with you. Later on, he denies Jesus three times. After the resurrection, Jesus meets with them on the shore. Actually, they see him from afar, and they say, throw your net over to the right side. And they get a lot of fish, and they realize it's at the Lord. Peter jumps in, swims quickly to him, and has a conversation with Jesus. And Jesus says, do you love me more than these? Just reminding him that he was the one who said, yeah, these guys maybe, but I love you more. In this point, he says, you know I love you. He doesn't say, I love you more than the, the other guys. Jesus is not trying to shame him. He's doing something here because it's in the back of Peter's mind. The shame is still there. He might be forgiven, but his performance wasn't so good. Jesus tells him again, do you love me? Then feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Third time, at this point, he knows Jesus pointing out the fact that he denied him three times, had to say, I love you three times. Most of us say, you go back to all those people you denied in front of, and then you make it up. Jesus says, feed my sheep. He gives him something to do. He restores him to grace. What Jesus is actually doing is mending Peter's nets. There's holes in his nets after success of catching fish in the miracles. There's holes in our nets just in the daily life, and we have to help mend each other's nets, and we do that with honor and grace. Jesus is mending 
Peter's nets at this point. Every, I love you, do you love me? He's just knitting that back together. So he can be the fisher of men, like Jesus said he was going to be. And we need to mend each other's nets with respect and not say, oh, you got broken nets. How are you ever going to catch fish? No, we just sit down, have a meal, mend each other's nets, encourage one another in grace. Otherwise, if we don't, if we fall short of the grace of God, bitterness kicks in. And that's when many become defiled and it, it's contagious. And that's what's happening in our country is this contagious, bad spirit. But there is light. There is salt. We have the spirit of God. We have to hold to the right spirit. And we have to have a clean heart and constantly pray for a renewed spirit. Thank you very much for listening. Um, any issue, team can come up. And we'll close.